Press. There we go. So, Hebrews, chapter 7, and uh, Dad covered uh, a good bit of this. We're going to hit the high spots uh, again, and then uh, go as far as we can into uh, chapter 8. So, just by way of, I guess, uh, a review, or, or, or just um, uh, kind of a big picture strategy, is to once again remind ourselves of, of why uh, the book of Hebrews was written and what it meant to them and what it can mean to us. And I think one of the things is that it was certainly meant to provide the, the, the theological underpinnings for this new faith. You know, there was this group of people that had been steeped in the, the Jewish way of relating to God and uh, through the law, uh, through what we now call the Old Covenant, through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Uh, here the author is explaining uh, the new way of, of, of um, connecting to God. Most of the people had already had what we would probably call a, a personal relationship with Jesus. They accepted the claims of Christ, um, most of them. But uh, like a lot of new Christians might we could give them the basics on, on how to um, just put all of their their trust and hope in Jesus, um, but yet they still don't know a whole lot. Uh, they don't maybe have years of Sunday school and so forth, so we spend a lot of time in discipleship and teaching them. Uh, so in the same way, the author had people who, many of whom had... Um, had a relationship, uh, what we would call a relationship with Jesus, but they didn't have uh, the theological underpinnings for what that means and how did that relate to what we used to know and that sort of thing. So uh, there's a lot of explanation uh, given in Hebrews, and we're going to continue some of that today. But then there are other elements uh, where we've been really encouraged, and a stronger word would be exhorted to really evaluate who is it and what is it that we're really putting our hope in so we've had these little warning statements about you know are you persevering to the end are you are you all in for Jesus and uh, to maybe address some of those people who were kind of on the fence or uh, maybe um, the author couldn't really tell from the outside if if their profession of faith was really authentic so there was this this kind of hard encouragement or exhortation word but then there's also elements that it was designed to give hope and encouragement to them. And so as we go through this, um, and some of which, as you've seen, get, can get fairly technical and very detailed and somewhat you know, Old Testament driven, uh, how do we extract those same elements for us? You know, how do these statements help us understand our faith today how does it exhort us to to go deeper and then what hope can we pull out of this for our own future and the application of the day-to-day -day? so as we go through this and and um, and work through these verses keep those things in mind and 
and uh, and if something does stick out or that applies to where you are now or if something has uh, we certainly want to hear that um, uh, you know in uh, to share uh, so so be ready for that if if you feel that so let me hit some high verses um, Beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, we have this verse. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. So we've been hearing about Melchizedek and this big theme that uh, there is an order of priesthood that is better than what was known as far as uh, the the Mosaic law uh, and the priesthood of Levi and of, of Aaron before that there's a there's a better priesthood than that and a better priesthood calls for a better priest and here we uh, hear about Melchizedek it says king of Salem priest of the Most High God it was not only not typical but in some ways purposefully divided that priests were priests kings were kings and there wasn't overlap there they each had their own roles the the priests were from Aaron and Levi the uh, the kings were from the tribe of Judah um, but here we have one who was both king and priest so that was different um, and then we see this section as introduced by this verse where Abraham uh, uh, is basically giving tithes to Melchizedek, showing his um, this greater and lesser relationship between the two of them. And uh, so this is one of the author's points that, that there, I there is a priesthood better than what they have been working under all these years. Okay, so we know that. Now we get down in verse 11, we get this comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek. And uh, basically the author saying, uh, Jesus is following the Melchizedek mold uh, rather than the mold of Levi. Verse 11, now if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. And he goes on and says uh, in verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. The point with Melchizedek, there's what's called an argument from silence that the Hebrew author makes, basically saying, you know, one of the reasons that we really put um, so much trust, so to speak, in our current priesthood or, or uh, the traditional priesthood of Levi is we know the origin. We know it came 
at God's direction through Moses to Aaron to Levi and the whole descent. We know the genealogy of these people. We know when they started, when they finished service. We know that whole line so we can have a certain amount of trust with that. He's saying, you know, Melchizedek, he just was. We don't know who his mom and daddy were. We don't know what succession was. We don't hear about him being born. We don't hear about him dying. He just was. He had authority from God on high to be both king and priest. He just, he just was. And so he's saying, well, Jesus is like that. Jesus just was. And uh, not because of certain ancestry, um, but because God ordained it. And uh, for that reason, he's so much better. And in verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So here's a nice transition uh, in verse 18 that introduces a couple comments. One is, all the things he's saying should, should be hope for these people. It's, it's designed to not to condemn, uh, but to give people hope. And then this concept of, this is how we draw near to God. Now, in the Old Covenant, there wasn't a lot of drawing near to God it was, you know, how can, how can our sin be covered? How can we not receive um, the condemnation and the, the punishment that we deserve? Uh, well, okay, the sacrifice is going to cover us for our sin, but, you know, it wasn't a lot about uh, drawing near to God in a relational point of view. So here we have this concept that we have a better hope and we can get near to God. We can have this relationship to God. And it, it harkens back to, you know, what was the, one of the most amazing things about the Garden of Eden? It was all relational. You know, God and Adam and Eve were just walking together and communing there in the garden. And that type of relationship has just been gone for so long. And now... We've got this new thing, this, this new covenant. Uh, it's a better hope and through which we can draw near to God. All right, let's keep going. One of the reasons that this new priesthood on the order of Melchizedek, uh, the, uh, that of Christ, is better is because, uh, in verse 20 it says, because God uh, sealed it with an oath. There was no, there was no divine oath that started the... Um, uh, Levitical one verse 22 it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant so another transition verse we've been talking this whole time about a better priestly order and a better priest and now the logical transition if you got a better priest it's probably because there's a better covenant uh, and that's introducing this section and we're going to talk more about that in chapter 8 and in the chapters that follow uh, so there's a shift from a better priest to better covenant verse 26 talks about some of the character of Christ it says 
It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So much of the work of the priest was not just to represent the people, but to just focus on their personal preparation and their personal cleansing of sin so that they could even be halfway worthy uh, to, to represent the people in God's presence. Uh, Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't need all these sacrifices for himself. That's all been taken care of. So let's move into chapter 8. Yes. So understand clearly where Jesus is today, but with the foreverness of Melchizedek, where is where is he? So number one, we don't know. <laughs> um, it gets that some people have said, well, okay, who was Melchizedek? Was Melchizedek really uh, Jesus in the Old Testament? And it certainly, you would, I mean, you wouldn't be faulted for thinking that, but it's pretty clear that Melchizedek was a man. Um, but we don't know about that, but we do know that, that there was an order established by him and Jesus is in that line. We've talked before about this concept of typology, where there is a... Uh, an image of something to come and um, certainly Melchizedek is a type of Christ a a foreshadowing of Christ um, and some of those critical elements uh, that related to Melchizedek were useful to the author to show how much better Jesus is but I, I'm assuming that maybe Melchizedek is just in glory um, you know, there have been a handful of people. Was it Enoch that God just took and didn't die? Um, Elijah? You know, um, so maybe he's in that group. I'll have to go back and see how many times I said maybe in that little answer. <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The point being that right now, that is when this book was being written, the whole sacrificial system was still going. It was still happening. There were, you know, there were stockyards right next to the temple with full of animals that were destined for the sacrifices. Uh, there were priests who were still going through the ritual cleansings. There were, all that was still in play. It was still happening. But look what it says in verse 5. They serve a copy 
and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Jesus was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. When Moses, I don't know where that came from. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Several places in scripture, as, as God is, is um, going over what the tabernacle is going to look like, um, he goes back, make it, make it like I showed you. Go according to the pattern that you saw. So Moses was given a glimpse of a structure in heaven. And, you know, you hope he had a photo photographic memory because God kept saying, make it like I showed you. Make it like I showed you. So when he says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The current priests that were in play were, were performing all the rituals in a place that was the translation of Moses' best interpretation of what he saw from a construction standpoint. Now there were obviously very detailed instructions on fabrics and all this sort of stuff, but but many times he called him back. Use the pattern that I showed you. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as a covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So in this rather extensive quote, um, Beginning in verse 8, uh, one of the longest Old Testament quotes um, that we have, he's going to outline ways where the new covenant is better. And this is part of uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. As the Babylonian exile was approaching, um, giving these people some hope. Verse 8, for he, for he finds fault with them when he says. Now, I found a commentator who made a really good case when it says, for he finds fault with them when he says. Um, the them there is the, apparently a, an interpretive option there. And he says it flows better, and he finds grammatical evidence to support where he's referring to the covenant. For he finds fault with the covenant when he says, colon, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And he's going to talk about the new one in a minute. So let's talk about kind of the negative view of 
this new covenant. In other words, um, he's first of all going to talk about the insufficiencies of the old covenant. And he says, you know, I found fault with this. These people didn't continue in my covenant. So the old covenant was definitely, um, you break the rules, you're out of the covenant. The new covenant, he's saying, is not like that. So what is the basis of the new covenant? Well, it's, it's not explicit here, but it's implied the new covenant is based on grace. It's based on grace. It's not based on following every single thing. It's based on, it's based on grace. It's based on who our high priest is, who's making that mediation for us, who has already done that sacrifice. So the, the, the kind of the negative argument about the badness of the former covenant was that, you know, you could break it. You could break it. But look at the latter part of verse 10. This new covenant, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. A couple of really amazing things about this new covenant. First of all, to kind of work backwards, our sins dealt with. Our sin is dealt with. Once and for all, our sin is, has been dealt with. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to come every year to, to have a fresh sacrifice. God through Jesus has accepted that sacrifice once and forevermore. We receive mercy. It says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Um, I wish when we got saved that we became sinless after that. It hasn't been my experience. <laughs> I don't... I, I don't um, I don't know that any of us would want to, you know, give examples. But yes, we're we haven't we haven't fully realized all of the righteousness that has already been applied to us. This now and not yet thing that we'll continue to see more of in this book and throughout scripture, but but yet my sins are covered. When God looks at me, he sees someone who's sinless because Jesus has made me righteous even though I'm still sinning. And if that doesn't scramble your brain, I didn't say it right. <laughs> because it's, I mean, it's, it's this crazy mystery of how that, that can be applied to us even though we still have our propensity for iniquity. And some people get, you know, do we, you know, our old nature has passed away. Yes, that's true. But, you know, even Paul grappled with that. You know, I, I, I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. So we still have some sinful flesh that hasn't fully been redeemed yet. And um, I'm certainly not going to be able to explain that in the next five minutes. Backing up a bit further, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one shall say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So when we're saved, we, we all get to know God. How is that? 
It's through the Holy Spirit in us, right? Jesus said at one of his last things, I'm going to leave. But when I leave, you're going to receive power through the Holy Spirit. He told the disciples, I'm not going to leave you empty-handed. I'm going to leave you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. So we get to know the Lord. We don't have to infuse the Holy Spirit into someone else. One of the, you know, there's some denominations that feel that you get saved and then there's a second thing that happens where you get the Holy Spirit. Teach, uh, scripture doesn't really teach that, I don't think. We all get the Holy Spirit when we're saved. Uh, Ephesians talks all about that. The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of our salvation. He's our seal of salvation. We get to know the Lord right away. But then look, again, working backwards, back up to verse 10, I will write my laws into their minds. That's, you know, our Holy Spirit-infused conscience. And write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There is so much more of a relationship-based covenant as opposed to a proxy-based covenant. Now, I'm not sure if those terms are right. I just made that up right now. But there was an intermediary, right? There was a, there was a priest that you had to, to go through. Uh, Catholicism replicates that today. The priest gets to decide whether your sins are forgiven or not. That's, that's just wrong. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through Mary to bend the ear of Jesus. We go straight to Jesus. And it says, I will write this on their hearts, um, on their minds. Um, what is it Romans 12 says? There will be a renewing of our minds. So... This is a, a transformative covenant. It changes us. It begins to mold us into new creatures, sanctified people. Um, this, this transformative nature of this new covenant, the old covenant didn't have that. So as we're looking for encouragement, if we're looking for hope, that's that's what we're seeing here to wrap up the chapter it says in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away we have a little prophecy here we know that just in a few short years the temple was going to not exist anymore the sacrifices were going to stop they're still stopped to today that former system was gone. The writer's, the writer's job here was to inform them of how much better the new covenant was, but they still kind of had, if those people that were sitting on the fence, they still kind of had two to pick from, right? There's no two to pick from anymore. Um, and it makes you wonder, um, I mean, truly wonder, you know, what is it that the Jews are hanging on to today? I don't, I don't know enough about that, but I know it's heavily infused with tradition. It's heavily infused with following, you know, rabbinic teachings of how to live a good life and how to, you know, serve your community and to serve the, your Jewish believers and, you know, following, you know, kosher laws and, you know, but you don't, 
you don't think about the relational thing like this new covenant has talked about. You know, when when the Jews put all their eggs in that basket, so to speak, and then the temple went away, I, I, it, I, I honestly don't know how they really move from that position, but God's got more in mind for them down the road. A new covenant. Hope for us. Transformation for us. having our sin dealt with once and for all. So many benefits of this new covenant. We talked about the temple being a copy and a shadow of what was to come. And we're going to see later that this theme gets visited that that system was was just a copy and a foreshadowing of what's to come. In, in somewhat of a similar but maybe a better way, we're some kind of like that now, where the relationship that we have where we pray and worship God, that's probably just a fraction a mere reflection of what it's going to be like for us in heaven. So as much, we're in so much a better position now than the old covenant was, but I would imagine that its magnitude's different. You know, our current position compared to the old covenant is probably infinitesimally more meager, more weak than what our ultimate Realization of the new covenant is going to be in heaven. Um, so, this theme's going to continue. He's going to talk about. It says the first covenant had regulations for worship and so forth. He's going to get, you know, deeper and deeper into how much better things are now than they were, because um, that's the whole point. All right, we'll stop there. Questions, comments. Except Larry. No, that's okay. Um, I actually, um, three weeks ago, if you had asked me who Melchizedek was, I would have probably said I think he was a, G, uh, a Jesus appearance in the Old Testament. Apparently that's not true, so I was had to change my thinking on that. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for, gosh, so many things. We thank you for our place within this new covenant. We thank you for our relationship with you through Jesus, our high priest, who at this very moment is at your right hand interceding for us, um, handling our sins, handling our needs, uh, mediating for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who comforts us now, who uh, informs our conscience, who prays for us when we don't know how to pray who is continually encouraging and comforting us and trying to mold us uh, on this side of heaven to a better image of your son. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.